And the setting here lets us imagine an experiment where we reset this urban spatial structure of businesses in San Francisco and see what happens when you eliminate history. This is Densely Speaking, Conversations About Cities, Economics, and Law. I'm Jeff Lynn. I'm an economist at the Philadelphia Fed. I'm Greg Schill. I'm a law professor at the University of Iowa. We're going to be talking about natural disasters and business location today. And our guest today is Jim Sayodla. Jim is an associate professor of economics at Colby College. He's the author of Firms, Fires, and Firebreaks, The Impact of the 1906 San Francisco Disaster on Business Agglomeration, which was published in the journal Regional Science and Urban Economics in 2021. Jim, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jeff and Greg. It's great to be here. I'm excited about our conversation. As am I. This is a really fascinating paper. Full disclosure, I guess, I handled this paper at RCUE, but I liked it so much that I wanted to have you on the show. This is the third in a series of papers you've written studying the San Francisco fire and its aftermath. The first paper, Raising San Francisco, came out in the Journal of Urban Economics in 2015. And then there's a second paper on land use changes called Clean Slate and Explorations in Economic History in 2017. The first question I have for you is, how did you get interested in the San Francisco earthquake and fire? and why do you think it's interesting? I had been taking urban economics field courses at UC Irvine with Jan Bruckner, and he was talking a lot about those urban models as being, you know, a lot of the, the comparative statics in there, we kind of treat cities as malleable. And I started thinking about, well, the durability of capital and how important that is in how cities sort of evolve over time. And I can't remember exactly how I came across the idea of using the San Francisco fire, but I remember having some conversation with my wife about the 1906 fire and thinking this would be a really great and interesting sort of test of how cities evolve over time and provide a window into how cities function. If I could find the data that will help me answer some of these questions. So it was really sort of a, a germ of a thought about San Francisco and this really big fire. I knew it was one of the biggest disasters in U.S. history. And then thinking about, well, what you know, what kind of data can I bring to bear on this? And so that was really sort of the crux of it. And I remember being very excited about finding the Sanborn maps, which are the data source for the first two papers that you mentioned there. And those maps provide incredible detail about land use in the city and across a number of cities in the US and really, really interesting data source. And so when I found those, there's a lot of excitement, but then also just that trepidation of, wow, I've got to pull data from, from these maps and then actually create something that we can analyze. But that was, I think the basic idea, I took the idea to, to Jan and he was very, very supportive. And from there it was just hard work. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty nice. The story about how some knowledge of history and then finding the right data source to kind of unlock some interesting economic questions. I'm very sympathetic to that. How do you think these papers fit together? And what is different about the third paper, the firms, fires and firebreaks paper? Yeah, good questions methodologically a little bit different. The question's different. So here we're focused on firm locations, which is a different thing from previous papers. The previous papers, I'm focused on residential density. I'm focused on land use, commercial, industrial, residential land use. Here, we're focused on business locations. We're interested in understanding the extent to which a disaster can impact where they decide to locate relative to one another and where they decide to locate within the city itself. So those are businesses, of course, are, are a different sort of decision-making framework. They represent a, a different decision-making framework than households and others who are you know, making decisions about where to live and what to build and so on. I'm curious, Jim, 
as you were kind of digging into this, it, did it sort of immediately strike you as three projects or did that develop organically just for somebody, yeah. maybe a grad student or someone out at, at the outset of a research project? Yeah, initially it wasn't focused on these three different outcomes. The Sanborn maps provide information about land use in particular. I use a completely different data source for this third paper. So I didn't have necessarily that vision at the outset. I will say though that my dissertation, these three papers basically make up the bulk of my dissertation on, on the project or on the San Francisco earthquake and fire. So I have essentially three essays, and these three papers are based on those essays from that dissertation. So at some point, I did come to this idea of, hey, let's look at business location patterns as well. There, I decided to use these historical city directories to get the information about locations, because the Sanborn maps don't provide all the detail about the industry that's located in particular buildings, for instance, or what kind of firm is there. And so that information I thought was really helpful for understanding business location patterns in this third paper and something that wasn't really available at the Sanborn map level for those first two papers. So I think my first initial vision was kind of use as much as I could from those Sanborn maps, but Eventually, I sort of realized that I would need to build on that and use something else. And so that's where this third paper comes in. I think the three papers together form a nice sequence. And I I can really appreciate the bootstrapping, the kind of the next project on the work that you've done already. And so I see that as a very nice progression. So the, the paper that is nominally the topic of our discussion today is the firm's fires and fire breaks paper, which is on business location. As you said, there's at least two important distinctions here, right? One is we're focusing on a different economic problem, which is the problem of business location as opposed to residential location. And then two is this kind of new data source that kind of unlocked that, which is like the city directories. Can you summarize for us a little bit about what is kind of the main economic question that you're trying to answer in this paper? I think the article asks a a pretty simple question. How does a large-scale disaster impact business locations within a city? And I think that's an important important thing to keep in mind. So spatial distribution of businesses sensitive to a large temporary shock. And so using the San Francisco fire from 1906 as this large-scale disruptor to the city's business location patterns, that's the the focus of the paper. And, And here's the basic thought experiment. You just have a disaster that destroys much of the city's buildings, gives opportunities for businesses to relocate, reorganize, rebuild. And so the question is, what do they do? Do they reorganize according to established patterns? Do they use the opportunity to make changes? And so I see this really, or the answer to this question as a window into how cities function. And I've kind of view all my papers within that framework. So it relates, as you know, Jeff, to a large question in the urban economics literature. Is there a single natural equilibrium in the location of economic activity? Or does it have multiple possible equilibria? All else equal in this case, if we see a return to original patterns, this suggests a single equilibrium outcome, the importance of local fundamentals, local characteristics, and sort of driving agglomeration. But a reorganization of location patterns suggests multiple equilibria and a place for history in shaping cities. And I think at the outset, too, it's important to kind of relay the the idea that I'm making a distinction between clustering of firms and the distribution of firms across city blocks or neighborhoods. So how are firms locating relative to one another in the same industry? And then how are they locating within the city? How are they distributing themselves across space in that way? So in this paper, I make those distinctions. Yeah, I think that's a great explanation. The interesting part of this question is what determines business location, in particular, what determines business clustering or business districts? And do we think it's something that's about fundamental fixed factors, right? Like 
features of the landscape or features of infrastructure? Or do we think it's something about these positive, maybe external economies that firms experience when they locate near other businesses, whether they're competitors or suppliers or customers. I think that that's really interesting. And and the setting here kind of lets us imagine an experiment where we kind of like reset everything and then see, reset the sort of urban spatial structure of businesses in San Francisco and see what happens when you eliminate history, then, then what happens? Maybe this is a good chance to talk a little bit about the data and the design. So the data, as we alluded to, is pulled from historical city directories. So these are a lot like the yellow pages of the day. And so they're very organized. They tend to show you by industry, the list of firms and their locations within the city. And so I'm able to pull What I do is I randomly sample about 100 different industries in the city at the time. And this covers anything from finance and real estate to manufacturing, wholesale firms, retail, and so on. So I take a sample of about 100 of those industries out of maybe, depends on the year, but between 15 to 1800 different industries are shown in these city directories. And so I pull information, digitize the data, get the addresses, and then link those to Geolocator that was designed for this project. Basically, the issue with attaching locations as addresses is that if you were to do this with modern data, you would, of course, get modern locations. But back in 1900, 1910, 20, and 30, We have different street names, potentially, and different address ranges for different city blocks and that sort of thing. So I built this historical address geolocator for this to identify exactly where they were in the city. So that's the basic data source. I'm looking at data from 1900 to 1930. So I've got a couple of periods before the disaster, 1900 and 1905. I've got a period right after the disaster. So they created a a city directory in December of 1906. The disaster happens in April of 1906. So you have some sense of how the city was pretty quickly after the disaster, how it was organized, where these businesses were. And then I also have two other post periods, 1915 and 1930. So trying to get a a measure or a a sense of how the city's recovering nine years after the disaster and 24 years after the disaster. So that's the basic structure. I can dig into the methodology as well. But the basic idea on the methodology side is to measure the change in location patterns that happens between 1905, just before the fire, and then 1906, as soon as we can after the fire, where are firms located? So once you get that measure, that's sort of the first step. I can get a sense then of whether the disaster's effect on location patterns was reversed between, say, 1906 and 1915 or 1930. Yeah, so you've got data, incredible amount of data on kind of the baseline location of firms or on the eve of the fire and then just after and then kind of a more long run, a couple of observations in the long run about how did the geography of firms change about 10 and then 25 years after the disaster. The business information from the city directories is super interesting because we don't actually have a lot of information about firms historically in the United States. And maybe the city directories are like one of the best ways to do that. But it always has seemed to me to be incredibly labor intensive to (laughs) use these. And I I wonder, having kind of done this pretty extensively for one city over a substantial chunk of time, what are your thoughts on the pros and cons of using these business directories? And what do you think about the outlook for more firm analysis in a historical setting in the US? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. Yeah, I'm only familiar with the city directories in San Francisco uh, intimately. I do have some sense of how they look in other places. I think one of the issues is the incredible variation across cities and how these were done and organized and, and written up. 
So I know some cities like New York have a little bit more information potentially about firms. You know, the ones in San Francisco are very much focused on their locations. So you have street addresses and that's about it. But that's that's really important when you're looking at within city analysis up to this point, especially when you think about U.S. census data, there's not a whole lot of information about city locations there. And you have this really nice resource that that tells you in these city directories, every business that they recorded and where they are located within the city. So any sort of spatial question you have, I think these are really, really helpful for. But if you're looking for more information about the size of these firms or their, you know, their employees, their production, that sort of thing, you're not necessarily going to find it in these directories. So I think they're really useful for understanding spatial questions, but maybe less so for understanding the nature of these firms and how they're organized. I always feel that tackling any kind of research question or doing any kind of research involves some kind of myopia. You're not not fully aware of all the problems you're going to run into when you start the project. Having gone through several projects of digitizing a lot of these historical documents, do you ever feel like maybe you wouldn't have done it if you had known all the challenges or maybe feel like actually it went pretty smoothly and there weren't too many unanticipated challenges? Yeah, I think there are always challenges with historical data. I wouldn't trade anything. I certainly would redo it all. But I think it's worked out pretty well for me. <laughs> but I think in those first couple papers, you know, the Sanborn maps in particular, those are incredibly dense maps with lots and lots of information. I've heard them described as sort of the footprints of the Industrial Revolution in cities in 19th century, early 20th century. And so that it's really, really fascinating to think about what these maps contain, but the data work is incredibly intensive, and that's the the challenge and the cost associated with with taking these projects on. In grad school, when I was working on those Sanborn maps for those previous papers, it was you know it was a lot of work. I remember spending summers just gathering the data. And I was really only focused on a a small part of the city. I was focused on the fire boundary itself and just the blocks nearest to it. And there's a whole lot more of the city to look at in those maps that I didn't even touch. And so I think there's so much potential in those things. And I think with movements in AI and some other things coming down the pike, I think there's a lot a lot of potential there. I'm excited to see what people do. I'm not sure I'm that person, but <laughs> we'll see what happens. It does feel like, you know, I've been watching the developments and as more of an observer than any kind of expert, but the developments in computer vision and AI, that seems like we're on the cusp of a dramatic decline in the costs of being able to fully utilize this kind of information. So you mentioned you focus on the burnt out area, and I take it the motivation is to see what is the impact of the shock over a period of time on treated firms and treated areas is either in this paper or maybe across the course of doing research for all three of these. How do you think about comparing what happened to these firms in these areas to sort of the counterfactual of what if the fire hadn't happened uh, or if what if it wasn't as bad or something like that? I guess I'll go to the first two papers. I know I haven't talked about these too much yet, but the first two papers have a different methodology. The first paper is looking at residential density as an outcome, and you're looking at burned versus unburned areas. And so in that paper, I'm focused on the boundary of the fire, and I'm focused on blocks that are on either side of that boundary. So there's blocks that are burned, blocks that are unburned, And the basic idea with that paper is to compare those two areas, both before the fire, and I show that trends in residential density are similar across those two areas prior to the fire. And then once the fire happens, burned blocks, of course, see destruction of buildings, and those are raised, and we have to rebuild. So we compare those areas that are similar. They were trending in similar ways prior to the disaster. They're in the same neighborhood oftentimes. Um, So there's a lot of characteristics that are held fixed there. 
And so we're looking at the effect of this treatment of the fire over the long run on these burned blocks relative to unburned blocks. So that's the basic methodology in the first paper. The second paper follows it. The second paper in Explorations is looking at land use, residential land use and non-residential land use, and showing essentially that Areas that were burned were more likely to transition toward non-residential land use than areas that were unburned. And this sort of plays out over the span of the century. We're still seeing some differences that kind of came out from the fire. The third paper takes a different sort of approach on the methodology. I kind of always approached it this way. I like the Davis and Weinstein approach to assessing shocks and their impact and so I borrow that methodology in this paper, and I'm looking at sort of measuring, as I mentioned before, the changes in business location patterns between 1905 and 1906. The issue with that is that that if we're kind of using those changes, that disruption, all those changes that are happening to business clustering and so on immediately after the fire as a proxy for the size of the shock that's measured with some error because those changes between 1905 and 1906 also might depend on some other factors and might even have some history sort of in those. And so that's one of the things that I approached this paper with is I use an instrumental variable strategy here and in, in use the fire as an instrument, trying to isolate the exogenous changes that happen between 1905 and 1906, those changes that are due solely to the fire in business location pattern changes in that time period. And once you isolate that variation that's due solely to the fire, you can identify the recovery from it in particular. And so that's really uh, the focus of this paper. And I think it's kind of a nice way to think about how clustering happens. You just measure essentially industry clustering or industry location patterns, business location patterns before the fire, kind of leading up to the fire, get a sense of how the fire impacted those things, those patterns, and then identify whether there was a complete recovery from that, a partial recovery from that, or no recovery at all. And that result tells us something about the permanence of this disaster on business location patterns, which then tells us more about what drives these things in cities. So the structure of the analysis is that there's two outcomes that you're going to be looking at, right? So the first one is what is the level of clustering within an industry, between establishments within an industry? And mm -hmm. so that's about how far any establishment in an industry is from a different establishment in the same industry. So that's the first outcome, right? And the second outcome is actually like, where in the city are these industries locating? There's a very nice map <laughs> in the paper kind of illustrating this for industries in general, but I think machinists in particular. And so obviously, this is probably ideal for our audience <laughs> is describing a map in an audio medium, but it might be helpful to describe the main results. Like what happened to machinists before and after the fire? Yeah, so I do have these maps in the paper. And I think kudos to you, Jeff, for mentioning that, if I remember correctly, you said it'd be nice to see some maps in here. So these were ones that I created on GIS that Tell us a little bit about where firms are locating, where they're at in 1905, what the disaster does to these firm locations in 1906, and then 1915. So I show in the paper a couple different maps. One is for all firms in all sectors. And you kind of see, you know, you see a lot of movement sort of west in the city, south and west is kind of where a lot of the decentralization is happening. So firms are moving to the suburbs at the time. That's sort of the suburbs of, of San Francisco. So moving from the center part of the city, decentralizing out. So you see that dispersion happening in 1906 after the fire, which is what we expect. So all these Buildings are burned out in the center part of the city where the fire happens. This fire destroys about 28,000 buildings, about five square miles of land. So it's a really substantial fire. So you see that dispersion effect. And then by 1915, some of these patterns, it's hard to see in, in the map, but some of the patterns do seem to suggest that decentralization that happened in 1906 is, is looking permanent. 
or at least by 1915, it's still there. And so that's kind of a nice picture of that effect. But I think when you look at a particular industry like machinists, you see a little bit more about, you know, this pretty incredible clustering that's happening in 1905, 1906. There's some dispersion south, some dispersion west, and then 1915. Those locations seem to be pretty uh, pretty permanent. You see that there's not a whole lot of movement between 1906 and 1915, yet there's still uh, some interesting clustering happening among these industries. And so the maps kind of try and depict this in both of these outcomes as much as possible. But you definitely see the dispersion and you see the relocations, I think, in these maps. Yeah, so overall, across industries, you have this shock in 1906, where you're able to measure significant dispersion that happens after the fire. But then on average, those patterns recover, right? So on average, 10 or 20 years later, the industries are kind of similarly clustered according to this index of clustering that you have. But the second part of the analysis is that it's not necessarily the same neighborhoods that the industries are clustered. They're still clustered at more or less the same level, but somehow they found kind of a new location to cluster in. What do we learn from those two results jointly? It seems as though agglomeration economies, those benefits that firms get from locating next to one another in similar industries are really strong. And those are things that firms are not going to give up. But With a fire of this magnitude, a disaster of this magnitude, it does kind of de-anchor these firms from their previous locations. What's interesting about San Francisco is that you see, even before the fire, some churn in these markets to kind of move out from the center of the city. I allude to that a little bit in the paper, but it's the locations themselves that are less important than the agglomeration economies that they get from the benefits they get from locating next to one another. And I think that's the big, the big takeaway. They can locate in multiple locations within a city. We can have industrial districts in multiple locations, but the important thing seems to be their locations relative to one another. And it's not that all industries are actually moving out of downtown San Francisco. Uh So what are some of the industries that are actually becoming more centralized after the disaster? Yeah. So I find in the paper that manufacturing industries in particular seem to be the industries that were most impacted in terms of relocations. Overall, it seems as though all these different sectors do cluster at the same level on average. But we see these different sectors relocating to different places in the city. And manufacturing is one where they relocate to areas at the periphery of the city after the fire. I think we also see, I mentioned in the paper, uh, it might be in Clean Slate as well, the explorations paper, that there's this new retail district that emerges on Van Ness, which is a major thoroughfare of the, of the city. And there was a lot of discussion by journalists at the time that they noticed that retail firms were moving to that part of the city where they weren't before. Uh, Van Ness was a pretty residential district and then becomes a pretty important retail district after the fire. A lot of journalists thinking this is going to be a temporary thing. We're not going to see them stay here. But in the end, it becomes this pretty prominent district for retail And so the fire sort of unleashes these pent up, I guess you could say, pressures for being in particular areas of the city. There's some helpful context here, I think, is that San Francisco is experiencing some pretty rapid increases in rents and land values at the center of the city. There's this really interesting uh, publication in San Francisco at the time called the San Francisco Real Estate Circular that observed a lot of these real estate patterns, I think, leading up to the disaster. So I've got quite a bit of anecdotal evidence there showing sort of these pressures, these demand pressures for certain types of industry to be located in the center of the city. And so those rising land values are encouraging firms to maybe look outside of the central part of the city. And it's the disaster that kind of creates, I think, an opportunity to explore those other options. 
just looking at your table here, mapping the different L values or the amounts of clustering that f- following right. the fire, it looks like the fire industries, finance, insurance, real estate, mm-hmm. make the biggest recovery in terms of clustering. To what do you attribute that? Is that, you know, and how does that link to that change in land values downtown or those unrelated? How should we think about that? Because there's really a striking difference. You mentioned manufacturing. That's the least. Fire is the most. There's a very significant about yeah. 0.5 difference there. Right. So yeah, those are interesting thoughts. With the fire industry or the finance insurance real estate sector, these tend to be relatively, these are firms that are located in big office buildings downtown. You know, they benefit from being located uh, next to one another. They benefit from those agglomeration economies. You don't have too many options with regard to locations in big office buildings aside from downtown. So I think that for that for that particular sector, you're seeing the effect of needing to be in these tall buildings, needing to rent office space in these tall buildings, and uh, and in manufacturing, you know, with rising land values near the center, as these cities developed, manufacturing was often located really centrally, but these are land intensive types of industries. And so if you're looking at land intensive industries, you're probably going to be needing to think about acquiring land in other locations aside from just the center of the city. There's an interesting anecdote in in Chicago about the McCormick Reaper Works, uh, the firm that made a lot of farm tools and so on, these reapers. And so they were located in downtown Chicago before the fire. And there is this anecdote about how they were looking to expand their footprint and looking for a bigger place to do business. And so they started exploring locations outside the periphery of the city or outside the central part of the city. And I think this comes from a book called The Limits of Power. Christine Rosen has this really great book about this. And what we see there with McCormick is they... 1864, seven years before the fire, they're starting to look into land outside the center of the city. And they're sort of haggling with someone about a particular place that they're looking at. And nothing really happens until after the fire and their factory's gone, it's burned down. And at that point, they're thinking, okay, this is an opportunity to make a change. And it's not until after the fire that they actually do that. And it triggers this takeoff of other firms joining them in those outskirts of the city. And so I think for land intensive industries, it's sort of a different decision, right? It's others like those in the fire industry, less land intensive, that you're going to see a different effect potentially from those. I think there's something really interesting happening in this period. I think you're describing part of it, which is this transformation of manufacturing to be larger scale, more land intensive. But there's also these structural transformations happening in the office sector and the retail sector. These are sectors that are growing, where scale is increasing, and it's having these important spatial effects, right? So this is the late 19th century downtown is becoming more advantageous for retail and office work. And so you're getting that kind of rise of that 19th century downtown. And my take on what you're picking up here is some of these redevelopment frictions as kind of like holding back some of those spatial dynamics and the fire kind of clearing up some of those frictions that to kind of accelerate the increase in retail and office work downtown. Yeah, I view the fire really as sort of an accelerant in that way, uh, in more ways than one, I guess. But it's the idea that a lot of this churn, a lot of these things were sort of there before the fire. As you kind of look at some of the anecdotes from journalists and others, you know, they were talking about the need for space for manufacturing for wholesale firms and just the lack of properties available for firms in those sectors. And it's really, really interesting to think about the fire and how it sort of cleared out some of those frictions and allowed for changes to be made in these particular sectors. One thing you flag and sort of indicate is not a major factor, but something I'd like to at least bring out today is the role of zoning and other regulatory constraints. Sounds like so zoning comes in around 1921, I think, in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. So tell us why that doesn't really complicate the analysis of, for example, your 1930 outcome window. 
Yeah, that's a great point. I think it does actually potentially play a role in the 1930 outcome. I do allude to that in the paper that the further you go in that recovery period, the the longer you look, the more these confounding factors could play a role in what we see. By 1915, which is the first year that I look at after 1906, the zoning's not playing a big role at that point. It's not in code until 1921. I think one of the nice things about looking at San Francisco in this period is that we do see less onerous regulation of building, a more lax regulatory environment. There were some expansions of the fire limits at the time. Uh, There was a new fireproof roof area instituted or implemented at the time, but there weren't a whole lot of regulations regarding building at the time. So it's this interesting context for understanding sort of the natural frictions that cities face in adjustments. And then even once zoning comes in, I think modern readers would be surprised to hear that it sounds like zoning regulations were regularly waived and that there was a permissive approach taken to building in the 1920s. 15 plus years after the fire, can't really attribute it to a desire to rebuild the city at that point. As you point out, the city was substantially rebuilt by 1915 or And so it's confounding, perhaps, but not as much as, for example, looking today, where we would expect a much heavier regulatory hand. Right, right. And there's also potentially, you know, this idea that zoning sort of reinforces what's there at the time. And so there's research to suggest that that's sometimes the case when these codes are implemented. It's interesting. Your study is taking place in this era of a lot of dynamism in U.S. cities. Some activities are decentralizing, like manufacturing, but others are not, like offices and retail. And we're sitting here more than 100 years later. The opposite side of that dynamic, maybe with the death of the sort of downtown office and retail economy, but maybe with the same kinds of frictions holding back that transition a little bit. Have you thought about what kind of results your studies have for thinking about how we should adapt to the shocks of the present day? Yeah, I'm not sure I've spent a whole lot of time thinking about it as far as that goes. But when you think about the frictions that central cities are facing now, it seems as though a lot of it has to do with the adaptability of real estate and thinking about how to make office buildings, residential buildings, right? And and I think that's kind of the general theme of my research is that the durability of capital is a pretty important friction to change. And it's really difficult to repurpose buildings. It's really difficult and costly, expensive to redevelop, even in the absence of regulation. And I think there's always going to be these sort of natural frictions involved when we're talking about durable structures that last a long time. So in that sense, the past certainly constrains the present. Whenever we're looking at making changes in cities, the past is an important thing to consider. Yeah, I think that's well put. It it is interesting to think about. There's all these new technologies and new modes of working here that are making for certain kinds of work, like office work, centrality less valuable than before. But I still kind of believe that centrality has some value, whether Mm -hmm. it's for different kinds of work or it's for consumption or leisure. And I'm just kind of, I'm curious as to what is, (laughs) what's going to generate that kind of demand as office demand wanes. I think it's just a a realization that you can't plan serendipity. You can't plan ideas. You can't zoom and develop something. It, it, this comes through hallway conversations and all those things. And and I'm with you. I think when it comes to cities, I don't think we can ever lose that. I think those are important things to keep in mind and important things for the future for urban areas. In terms of the way that land developers and builders changed patterns after the fire. How did they? I mean, you mentioned some new regulation addressing fireproofing and so on, but did you see, for example, small structures get replaced by bigger structures? Did you see low-rise factories that are land-intensive but not terribly efficient on a revenue-per-square-foot basis rebuilt as office? I mean, this might be pulling you back into some of your prior work, but what can we learn about that? 
it does pull me back into the, the prior work. When I was looking at Sanborn maps, I was focused on residential housing. And so I gathered data on residential housing in burned and unburned areas. And I essentially find that density increases substantially in burned areas relative to unburned areas. So what we're building are apartment buildings in replacement of two-story flats and single-family dwellings and that sort of thing. And I'm also finding changes in land use. So it's sort of a clearing of a lot of single-family dwellings and building apartment complexes that are very dense. So that's sort of the, the structural change that's happening and then we're also seeing non-residential land become more prevalent in burned areas relative to unburned areas after the fire. And so a lot of that, I think, has to do with the turn of the city. And Jeff sort of alluded to this, that these are really dynamic places at the time. I mean, San Francisco between 1900 and 1930, if I remember correctly, almost doubled its population. So we're talking about a pretty substantial amount of growth in 30 years and all of this is putting pressure on land, it's putting pressure on land values, and the city's having to respond to that. And so the density increase I see, I think, is basic economic principle of substituting toward more capital when land is relatively expensive. That's kind of the story when we see land values rising like that. I think that's kind of the push in today's cities, too, as we see you know, this, this desire to go taller and denser in really expensive places, uh, but there are a lot of roadblocks to that. I think that is really interesting. And one difference from today is that the land use regime at the time, a lot of it would have gone up in smoke with the buildings, which is not true today. So a lot of it would have been covenants, for example, or nuisance claims mm -hmm. that once the buildings were all gone, it's a lot easier to start with a clean slate. Whereas today, the zoning does not automatically change simply because the building burns down. There's a process that has a lot of choke points. I think this would be an interesting avenue of future research is to understand more about the real estate markets in these cities and how they functioned in this period. I think there's an awful lot to learn about that. And I think it would inform a lot of what we found in San Francisco and other places as well. So I imagined you've interacted with the literature on the San Francisco disaster and other disciplines, in particular history. That's not the literature that I'm familiar with. I'm kind of curious as to your take on what are the major themes in the literature on the San Francisco earthquake and fire outside of economics? And how do you see your work as fitting into that literature? So there's been bit of work from historians. There's been quite a few popular books on this. I think a couple that I have in mind, one that's related directly to the San Francisco fire and another that isn't. The Christine Rosen book, uh, Limits of Power, that one has a lot of really interesting economics in it. And she looks at three different case studies of Baltimore fire, the fire in Boston, the fire in Chicago. I mean, I essentially use that book. She only looks at a few different industries in that book. And she kind of has these maps of locations and how businesses are changing locations within industries. And so I took that as sort of a bouncing off point for looking at trying to actually quantify the extent to which we see these changes. And so I think a lot of what my work has done sort of fits really in line with what she found for those particular places. And it seems as though... The size of the disaster really does matter. And I think that's where this is pretty important is to remember the context. Baltimore, Boston's fire was, was relatively smaller. Chicago had a pretty big fire and saw bigger changes, it seems, in business location patterns than did Boston, which had a relatively smaller one. I think uh, important things to keep in mind about the size of the disaster and the differences that come out of that. Another book is one on the socioeconomic sort of impacts of the disaster and what it did to neighborhoods and the changes. And a lot of that sort of suggests the disaster had some impact, but in terms of neighborhood changes, it seemed to just sort of reinforce existing patterns. 
And that's sort of my take on, on the socioeconomic side of things based on that book. But those are the ones that come immediately to mind. I think mine fits in by quantifying, as to Rosen's book on this, it quantifies clustering. It quantifies the distribution of businesses across city blocks and tries to understand the general effect of the fire rather than sort of anecdotal information about particular industries and what happened there. So I see my paper adding value in that regard. My work as well in the other papers, looking at quantifying density, quantifying all of these important variables and relating them to economic models. So to what extent do we see a general effect of these fires? And I think we need to see more research in this. You know, I think there's a lot more that we could learn about these shocks in cities and it could tell us a lot about how they function. And I, I'm excited to see what comes about. Fantastic. Fascinating. And I totally agree with that sentiment. Thanks for joining us, Jim. It's a real pleasure to chat with you. You're going to stick around for some appendices? Yeah. Thanks right. for having me. Yeah, it's yeah. been a blast. Jim, what's your appendix for this this week's show? So I have a couple of working papers, both of which are related to my own work. But Hannah Schwenk has a really good paper. It's called The Disruptive Effects of Natural Disasters, the 1906 San Francisco Fire. She's an economic historian, labor economist who has this working paper on the fire. And so she's linking census records, individuals between 1900 and 1940, following essentially the victims of the fire and using that border discontinuity approach. So if your house was burned down in the fire, how did you fare as a family and how did the children fare over time relative to those that didn't see their houses burned down? She finds negative effects as we'd expect, but these sort of attenuate over time. She finds an interesting effect that's fairly persistent through 1940 in business ownership and entrepreneurship. There seems to be a negative effect on that even by 1940. But I, I like this paper because it, it adds the human element, I think, to, to my own work, kind of suggests the role of historical events in shaping individual lives so I like it for that purpose. And then also a working paper by Leah Brooks, Jonathan Rose, and Stan Vuger on the Washington, D.C. civil disturbances of 1968. And this is a really interesting context because it's different from my own. Looking at San Francisco, you've got this growing dynamic city. But what happens in D.C., you're seeing destruction of properties in kind of a low demand setting, a setting where there's a lot of racial tension. You're seeing government get involved with purchasing individual lots to try and speed up redevelopment. So there's a lot of really interesting things to take away from that. They find a delay in redevelopment. And it's just sort of this nice reminder of the importance of history and context when studying these particular episodes. And we have to sort of keep that in mind. And I think as an economic historian, I have a deep appreciation for the context of each of these events and what it is that's driving them and the, the effects that we see. Both great recommendations. I've read the Washington DC paper by a friend of show, Leah Brooks and her co-authors. So I think that's like really fascinating for what it's saying about the public sector's role as well. Uh, and urban redevelopment, which is something that I think is, is under-examined. Yeah. Greg, you got something for us this week? What's your appendix? I do. I've got a, a short, fun one, and then a paper. I'll start with the the short one, and that is uh, the TV show Succession, which may not have an obvious urban economics hook to it, but it is really inconceivable that the show, which is about this family owned publicly traded company and the melodramas of succession battles within it, that that would unfold really anywhere other than New York and in the United States. And I'll just say a word about why that's the case. I think the New York part might be more obvious than the United States, which is kind of weird. But, you know, the New York part just being that it's a there's all these sort of high finance battles and activist investors and meeting with other market participants that is likely to happen in a financial center. But that kind of begs the question, why not? Couldn't this happen in London? Couldn't this happen in Hong Kong or something? And it's a fictional TV show, but the company that it is sort of based on is News Corporation, which is a real company. 
and and the Murdoch family sagas. And that is a company that has dual class share structure, which uh, in a nutshell basically allows the founders to control a majority of the votes without controlling a majority of the equity. And that is not allowed in the UK, for example, or in many other countries, but it is allowed in the US. So there's some interesting hooks there that are not necessarily obviously about geography as such, but they are about sort of legal geography at jurisdiction, which is kind of fun. The paper I wanted to flag is this new working paper from Kohei Takeda and Atsushi Yamagishi called History Versus Expectations in the Spatial Economy, Lessons from Hiroshima. And in the spirit of Jim's work, following on these other sort of disaster papers, they, the authors look at the impact of the atomic bomb in Hiroshima on a number of effects, but among them, spatial concentration of the economy in downtown Hiroshima. Basically, after the atomic bomb just completely destroyed the downtown, you might expect that to the extent industry returned, it would rebound you know, outside of the city center and more either in some other area or in a polycentric fashion. And what happened is that it largely grew back in the center. And interestingly, they find a sort of history independence story for this. They find that their theory is that the expectations of rebirth and rebuilding kind of became self-fulfilling and helped uh, generate that outcome, despite the extraordinary barriers to rebuilding in an area that had been destroyed by a nuclear blast. I guess a lot of the radiation had been mitigated within several months of the incident, but it's in some ways very surprising. And having been there myself, it was certainly very surprising to me just how lively it is and just how how vibrant it is. And it's, it's kind of amazing to think to some extent that happened within a few years of the attack in the very place that was in the very part of the city that was ground zero. Great recommendation, Greg. That's a really fascinating paper. I've got a current project where I'm thinking about some related themes. So stay tuned for that. There's another urban economic, uh, kind of urban economics angle to succession, I think. Well, I don't know. It's about migration, I guess, which is that three of the major stars of that show are not even originally from America, but they're playing American. So there's kind of an immigration story to the show as well. Yeah, I was kind of inspired by Jim's paper to think about an old favorite of mine, which is what seems to be a permanent working paper slash project from seven or eight years ago, about serendipity and urban redevelopment. And so this is the Green Street Project from Bill Easterly, Laura Fresky, and Stephen Pennings. There's a website and a working paper. The website is greenstreet.nyc. The working paper is called A Long History of a Short Block. Four centuries of development surprises on a single stretch of a New York City street. The street in question is Green Street and Soho. They trace its development over time. The first urban use is really as kind of an upscale residential block in the early 19th century. Over time, it transitions several times. So first in the 1850s to sex work and brothels, then in the 1880s as a major center of garment production, a long period of decline, and then in the middle 20th century, and then artists and galleries move in in the 1960s becomes the center of the art world. And then upscale retail and upscale residential come in starting in the 1990s. I felt like this paper was publicized pretty widely in 2015 and 2016. I don't think it's ever been published, but it remains kind of a favorite of mine. Thanks for listening to today's show. For Jim Silva and Greg Schill, I'm Jeff Lynn. Our producer is Courtney Campbell. Check the show notes for links to the articles discussed today on the show. Let us know what you think. On Twitter, at Densely Speaking, Greg is at Greg underscore Shill. I'm at Jeff R. Lynn. Jim, are you on Twitter? Sure. It's at J-S-I-O-D-L-A. Great. If you don't already, please subscribe to Densely Speaking wherever you get your podcast, and please take a second to rate and review the show as well. It helps other listeners discover the show. Finally, the views expressed on today's show are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, the Federal Reserve System, or any of the other institutions with which the hosts or guests are affiliated.